come midstream in the words of the Lord Jesus, who says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Uh, This is the word of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. There is no provision like that which we have in Christ. Uh, There is also uh, no one who knows all that God's people need so deeply and so comprehensively as the Lord Jesus does. One of the delegates to the Westminster Assembly of Divines, one of the Scottish delegates, a man named Samuel Rutherford once said this, Poor folk must either borrow or beg from the rich, but the only thing that commends sinners to Christ is extreme necessity and want. Christ's love is ready to make and provide a ransom and money for a poor body who has lost his purse. Christ is the poor man's market. And think of the analogy that Mr. Rutherford uses there, that Christ is the poor man's market. Think of that, uh, that, that, uh, that wordplay, that picture that's, uh, that's, that's going on there of a poor man being in a market. They can't buy anything at all. They're poor, they're impoverished, and yet they're in a marketplace. But that's the entire point. That's the very point of the analogy, that there is no provider such as Christ who gives of himself lavishly to impoverished sinners who have nothing of their own to give. Now, I'm not sure that the Bible has a clearer image as a shepherd to teach this very truth, uh, that God in Christ is shown to be the provider of his people and defender of his people. It's an image that's uh, used throughout the Bible, the image of a shepherd, Uh, literally from uh, Adam in some senses, Abel certainly, to Abraham, uh, to Moses and David and many more. In fact, kings in the ancient Near East were known as being shepherds of their people. And they were very often depicted having shepherd's crooks in their hands. Some of you are thinking of Psalm 23 right now that starts off by saying this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, what that doesn't mean, what that doesn't mean is that I don't want, that is, I don't desire anything. What that means, uh, taking the King James uh, Version English, translating that over to uh, modern English, is that uh, there's nothing that I lack, uh, that, that, that I have everything in my good shepherd. He grants to me, in other words, all that I would ever need. It's a version of Isaiah 26, verse 3. Uh, Isaiah says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. And so it's no surprise here to us that Jesus says in the context of false shepherds, mind you, and with the cross coming more and more uh, clearer into view, again, he has about six months left in his earthly life to live at this uh, point, 
that he claims himself to be the good shepherd. And he's saying this in the context of providing for his own, even providing for his very life for his own, in contrast to the false shepherds, uh, who whatever it is that they will provide, they will not be bearing, laying down their very lives for other people. They're largely self-interested. Uh, they're willfully dissuaded from their duty to care for the people of God. But Christ is the good shepherd, uh, who knows not only his own uh, at that time, but he knows everyone who will belong to him, who are yet in the mind of God in this uh, time. And we'll be, Lord willing, looking at this very passage with our theme that's uh, printed in your bulletin, that Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd of his sheep, whose protection and love extend to us this day who are united to him by faith. And by God's grace, we'll be looking right through this, uh, this passage uh, with those three uh, bullet points given in your bulletin. First, we'll be, we'll be looking at the good shepherd's description, the hireling's cowardice, and the good shepherd's flock. And we, we start by looking at the good shepherd's description. We come to verse 11, where Jesus, again, he says, I am the good shepherd. Again, in the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements, as you are perhaps aware of, that not only tell us uh, something unique about our Lord, but again, they begin with the very name of God. This fourth one right here, this fourth I am statement, is perhaps the most fitting in this sense when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Uh, And I say it's most fitting that he uh, uses this in his claims of deity because Anybody who knows the Old Testament knows that he's calling back the many times in the Old Testament where God is known as the very shepherd of his people. Again, we thought of uh, Psalm 23 a minute ago, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, Psalm 28, verse 9, O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. We'll hear a benediction from Isaiah 40, verse 11. God will tend his flock like a shepherd. Psalm 100, verse 3, says, Know the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Of course, the list can go on for a very long time, but Jesus is making abundantly clear that when he claims to be the shepherd, he is making an unmistakable claim of deity, an unmistakable claim with equality with his father. Also, not only is he the shepherd, but this is the very first time that an I am statement in the Gospel of John has a qualification to it. It has uh, some sort of adjective uh, attached to it. He's not only the shepherd, but he is also the good shepherd. And this can be understood in a couple of senses. Uh, Firstly, of course, most immediately, think of his surroundings. He is the good shepherd in contrast to all those false shepherds that are around him. Remember, this happens in the very context of the man born blind being healed. And after what is said in the end of chapter 9, it kicks off all this, uh, this whole thing. So those false shepherds are still there in his very presence. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that he, in contrast to these, is the genuine shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's the noble shepherd. He's the virtuous shepherd. And in the face of all the hypocrisy of the religious elite that is right around him, he stands head and shoulders above all of them. They act for their own good. He acts for the good of his people. You can also understand uh, this adjective in relation to the I am statement in general, can't you? 
If that's a claim of deity, then what do you think the adjective is doing? What do you think the description is doing? Uh, the I am statement and the I am the good shepherd statement uh, qualify his claims to be God in the flesh. That is to say, he is good in the same sense that God is good. Uh, the perfection of his goodness, the perfection of the, uh, the, 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 the attribute of the goodness of God also belongs to him na- natively, naturally. Uh, Titus chapter 3, although it's a different word in the Greek, uh, uses this, uh, the same concept that he is the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, walking around for everyone to see in full display before the world. And thirdly, not only is he the shepherd and not only is he the good shepherd, I'd like us to focus a little bit on the shepherd's task here. Uh, for the last number of uh, times that we've been thinking about uh, John chapter 10, we've been thinking about the task of a shepherd Now, a shepherd, thinking of this as a a shepherd, you'd think that he would normally say something like, I am the good shepherd, and I will tend my sheep, right? You would normally think that he would say, I am the good shepherd, and I will care for my own. I will shear my sheep, or I will lead them, or something like that. But it stands out to the people then, just as it does now, that he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, The wording here is unique to the Gospel of John, and we'll get into that more later. But it should be noted that when Jesus says this, he touches, uh, among many other things, upon the danger of being a shepherd in the first place. In other words, whatever can threaten the sheep can also threaten the shepherd. And think of who he's surrounded by in this very context. He's surrounded by wolves. And we know what will happen to him in six months' time. Uh, He'll endure the cross, despising the shame. He'll face the sufferings willingly. Why will he do this? Well, so that the sheep won't have to. His whole life that he lives, the death that he dies is appointed. It's rendered over to the sheep. It's what we call in Reformed theology the imputed righteousness of Christ. That is, the whole of the life that he lives all the way to his death on the cross is given to us, transferred to us who belong to him by faith. And mind you, it's his sheep that he lays his life down for. They're the ones who singularly, peculiarly belong to him, and so it's for them that he lays his life down. And this is where uh, we got to take inventory and say, brothers and sisters in Christ, You have in Christ a great reward. You have in Christ a shepherd who's given his very life for you. And as an apologetic uh, note, uh, that is in a note that uh, wants us to defend the faith, uh, I implore you and dare you to put put that up against any other religion, any other faith system, any other philosophy that the world has ever known. Uh, In Islam... Neither Allah nor Muhammad will give his life for you. In Buddhism, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, he will not lay his life down for you. He'll just give you more rules to follow. Think of the mystery religions that are popular back then and they're becoming very popular nowadays. There is no one that can lay their life down for you in any of these mystery religions and postmodernism, anything like, uh, like that. And think of the atheism in our very day is really the most to be pitied because in atheism, not even you can lay down your life for you. 
But in Christ, we have one whose whole life was given for us. It's laid down for you. This is the description of the shepherd, uh, the description of the good shepherd, our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus. And so when we come to our second point and the hirelings cowardice, we have something by which to compare this to. And so we come to verse 12 where Jesus first speaks of the hireling as something of a bad alternative, something of a, of a competitor to the good shepherd. Mind you, I use the word hireling uh, intentionally uh, because of the negative connotations that the word has. In other words, there's nothing wrong with being a hired hand per se. As we saw this morning in the wonderful sermon in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, says that ministers are God's fellow workers. As a matter of fact, the word for hired hand here is the same word. It comes from the same word in the Greek that Paul uses over in that very passage to refer to uh, someone who builds. Uh, Paul says in the original that he is the architect uh, of, uh, of God's house in some uh, manner, some measure. So there's nothing wrong, per se, with being a hired hand, But there is something wrong with a hired hand who doesn't maintain the soft skills that the shepherd wants to impart to the sheep. Particularly, the love that the shepherd has for the sheep. The care that the shepherd has for the sheep. The shepherd is concerned for their well-being. And insofar as this man is a hired hand, he shows himself to be the hireling, because of the negative connotations here. And so Jesus shows that this is a a derelict, a cowardly hireling, which directly relates to the Pharisees nearby. And what we see first about the hireling is that his cowardice is grounded in the fact that he does not own the sheep. Verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep. Now here it's got to be admitted to some degree that it's true of any hired hand. In other words, Uh, No pastor owns the people that he's ministering to. Uh, No pastor owns the church that he ministers at. However, the idea here is that the hireling doesn't overlay the qualities of ownership upon the sheep. In other words, there's no real stake in the game for him. Uh, He doesn't own them. They're not his own. And he'll sleep just fine knowing that whatever happens to them doesn't really incur any losses on his part. No skin off his back. He doesn't own the sheep, and so he assumes that he can basically act however he wants. Also, his cowardice is shown in his flight from danger. Verse 12, the hireling sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Now, if you raise your eyes to verse 5, look up to verse 5, you'll see where Jesus said that the sheep flee from the stranger, but here the hireling flees from the sheep. In other words, the sheep flee from the mere possibility of danger. They don't know uh, what the intentions are of this stranger. They just simply don't know his voice in that event. There's a possibility of danger, but here the hireling will flee the sheep in the event of actual danger, actual impending danger. One of the hallmarks of the hireling or the false teacher is self-preservation, reckless abandon with no regard to the good of the people that they're ministering to. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always on the offensive, and God has given his shepherds as a means of being, among other things, 
agents of their defense. First uh, Peter 5, verse 8 says that our adversary, the devil, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But the Lord Jesus cares for his own. He has a great concern for his own. He has a great concern for you. He doesn't want them to be in the hands of those who would flee from danger. Jesus also speaks of the hireling's cowardice in the context of his carelessness. Look at verse 13. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The original language of the last phrase, which also is unique to the Gospel of John right here, is is a little bit more potent. It portrays the hireling as egomaniacal. Uh, It reads rather awkwardly, he does not care in him about the sheep. So not only is he careless, but his carelessness is careless. Uh, That is to say, he doesn't have within him the very capacity for the concern for the well-being of the sheep. Uh, In other words, uh, uh, these are actual phrases that I've come across, and some of them are going to be toned down a little bit. Uh, I'm only in pastoral ministry for the money. I'm only in pastoral ministry uh, to extend my brand or to enhance my brand name or something like that. Maybe they want to get a YouTube following or something like that. I I don't know. Uh, I'm only in pastoral ministry because I want to be a writer. Or I've I've only taken this job as the shepherd because all I really want to do is something theological. I'm only in transition to get my PhD or something like, uh, like that. Uh, Again, I've heard many of those, almost all of those, I think, in the past, something like it, but none of these reflect the actual care that the Good Shepherd wants to show to his sheep. He is willing to lay down his very life for them. He wants to protect them. He wants to endure for them. He wants to endure with them. He wants to impart himself to them. He wants to convince them of his continued presence in and among them through the means that he has given And this leads us to our last point then, that of our shepherd's faithfulness to his own. That if we have the good shepherd, we have the hireling's cowardice, what's the flock going to be like? And so that leads us to our very last point this evening. In contrast to the hireling's cowardice, we have polar opposite in Christ. Again, he repeats for us to make this distinction between himself and the hireling a lot more stark. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. And he states the goodness of his care for his own by contrast. In other words, while the hireling doesn't overlay the the shepherd's ownership to the sheep, he says, I know my own, and my own know me. There's a mutual reciprocation that's there. That is... The child of God can be the most educated, uneducated follower of Jesus, right? Um, you can be the least read, you could be the least catechized, you can uh, be the one who is singularly convinced that I, in this crowd of Christians, am the very one who has not, not only just not arrived yet, but I'm so far behind everybody else. I got the farthest to go in my walk with Christ. You can be the most uneducated Christian. And still in this passage, the Lord Jesus extends to you that he knows you and that he loves you and he loves to call you his own. He knows his own. 
and his own know him, one of the most refreshing things that you can experience in Christ is a person who just became a Christian, just found out about the love of Jesus for them, and tell you what, they know nothing. They know absolutely nothing of Calvinism, Arminianism, never heard of it. Uh, they have no idea what Presbyterianism, I think it's those guys who wear funny hats maybe. Uh, they, they know nothing about dispensationalism, covenant theology. They know absolutely nothing. But you know what? They know that they are Jesus' own. They know that they love Jesus. And they know that Jesus loves them too. And that's enough. Brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever progress that you make in the faith, uh, whatever hurdles that you jump over in doctrine or in life, it's all in service to this basic fact. Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me. And verse 15 states the depth of the knowledge that he has for his own. He says, I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. That is to say, not only is the attribute of goodness applied to the Lord Jesus, particularly in his shepherding care, but his attribute of omniscience is as well. That all that can be called knowledge belongs to him about you. His knowledge of you is so great, so personal. His knowledge of you is so piercing, so comprehensive that it's in comparison with the knowledge that he has of his father. And so we can import an Old Testament understanding of this uh, as well, that this isn't just knowledge that is awareness. Yeah, I I know that you're there, as as though Jesus is saying, yeah, I I know that there my father is, and I'm aware that that he's he's there, and I'm I'm aware that, uh, that you are there. That's not what the Lord Jesus is saying here in the context of his shepherding care. This is a knowledge that imports a love for you who belong to him by faith that is compared with the love that he has for his father. John Calvin says here of Christ uh, that so far as he is the bond of our union with God, he is placed between him and us as if he had said that it is no more possible for him to forget us than that he should be rejected or disregarded by his own father. And this is the sense in which, as the rest of the verse says, I lay my life down for the sheep. All of his becomes ours. And the profound reality of all this is that the father is the one who orchestrated all of this. The father plans, the son accomplishes, the spirit applies all of this, and you are included into the covenant of grace by the mediation of Christ, by his work on on the cross and the empty tomb. So he owns his flock, he knows his flock, and lastly, we we can see that he gathers his flock. Verse 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. In other words, he protracts his shepherding care, his love, to those who are well beyond his immediate context. In other, in, in, this, this would mean to the first readers of the book that this includes those who are in the dispersion under persecution after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But in its broader application, this refers to all the people of God across history, even reaching down to our own time as well. And notice something about this, uh, this passage Notice that Jesus enhances 
his mission toward us. He doesn't say, yeah, I got other sheep and hopefully I'll get to calling them at some day. I'll probably get to them in fullness of time or in due time or something like that. Yeah, I'm planning on bringing them to me. He says, I must bring them. In the original language literally reads, it is necessary for me to bring these. We who are the object of his care belong to Christ. He purposes to gather us. And look at how he gathers us in the verse. By listening to his voice. That is, by the word being preached, delivered to us, and the Spirit, who speaks by his word, imparts to us the benefits of Christ. He intends to do this with all of his sheep, those who were in his time and those who were beyond his time, even to us. And he intends to do this, keeping in mind the fullness of his shepherding care for us. And so it belongs to his church to this very day to lift up the agenda of our shepherd, to continually listen to his voice and to continually depend upon his hired hands insofar as and as they do the work of the great shepherd of the sheep. So we've seen tonight that Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd of his sheep, whose protection and love extend to us now, who belong to him and who are united to him by faith. And I have a couple of applications as we close, brothers and sisters. Firstly, I want you to understand what it means that Jesus laid down his life for us. Look at verse 11. He says that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. As I said before, this word is unique here. This is the same word that Paul uses again in our passage this morning that when he says, I laid a foundation. Same word. Laid. It can be understood as the good shepherd appoints his life for the sheep. This is the only passage in the New Testament where this word is used in relation to the saving acts of Christ. And it's unique because it puts in view not only his death, but look at what the verse says. It says that he appoints his life for us. That is, from the moment of conception to his birth, his baptism, his temptation in the wilderness where he repels the devil, to his entire ministry, to his trial, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his being seated at the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes for us even now and his coming again to judge the world in the last day and beyond. All of this is appointed for you. He redeems the whole of you by the whole of his life lived in this age and the age to come. In other words, we who are in Christ have no meager gift. We have all of what Jesus Wins. We who are in Christ have in him heaven's greatest blessing. We have in Christ our exceeding great reward. We have in Christ our highest honor. All of him is given for us. When the shepherd lays down his life, when he appoints his life for the sheep, he means to say that it is a comprehensive act. He's comprehensive in laying all of it down, appointing all of it for you. And this is what you hold in your hearts. This is why we worship. This is why we seek to live a holy life that renounces ungodliness and worldly passions. This is why we live for Christ. 
This is why we don't fear death. We may fear dying, but this is why we don't fear death. This is why sanctification is such a comprehensive work to touch everything in our lives because it matches the comprehensiveness with which the life of Christ has been appointed to us and for us. Uh, As the Heidelberg Catechism says, that I, with body and soul, in life and in death, am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. If we get all of him, he gets all of us. So, brothers and sisters, know what it means that Jesus laid down his life for us. And secondly, support the shepherd by maintaining his care and the integrity of his fold. Support the shepherd by maintaining his care and the integrity of his fold. All of us are members of the church that Jesus paid for by his blood. We are his bride, we are his field, we are his building. Uh, We are the pillar and buttress of his truth. We are his fold. All of us have a part to play in it and a responsibility to uphold it in some way. All of us are charged in our own own abilities to strive for its peace, its purity, its unity. It's not our peace. It's not our purity. Our unity to strive for, it's his peace. It's his purity. It's his unity. This means that just as we've listened to the voice of our shepherd to come into the fold... We continue to listen to his voice for our instructions and how to live within it. Uh, That is to say, we don't rely upon what feels good or seems good to us. We don't operate according to what we would want to have happen or what would make sense to us. We listen to the voice of our shepherd and then we overlay the care and concern that our shepherd has upon all of his sheep to them individually according to our placement and according to our ability. And sometimes you're going to be on the receiving end more than you're going to be on the giving end. And you know what? There's a ministry in that as well. None of us is to be the hireling, though, or even worse, the wolf. So as you live the Christian life, be mindful that you belong to your shepherd who knows you even as he knows his father. And so bring the care that Christ has with you to all those who claim his name. If Christians won't care for each other like our shepherd shows in his example, then we lose the very purpose for our existence as a church. So support the shepherd by maintaining his care and the integrity of his fold. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus, the